0: If you will please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where we are at this morning as we press on, and this being the fifth sermon in our series on Sola Scriptura, Uh, I hope that you uh, grabbed an outline on your way in, as that will be our guide through God's Word this morning. You'll notice it's a little shorter, uh, but do not be deceived, as that does not mean that the sermon will be shorter. Because this text that we have this morning is tremendously packed with uh, a truth which I think will pierce the hearts of all of us, and I pray that it will. Uh, Again, I already mentioned at the beginning, I want to remind we are going to be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of our sermon. Uh, So go ahead and take observation, make sure you have enough materials, and then also if you have a child in the nursery. We are going to ask uh, that toward the end you go get them so that our nursery workers can partake in the Lord's Supper with us. So we began this journey of Sola Scriptura and looking at uh, the importance of the modern day importance, how it's still relevant to us today. And we began this in Second Peter by seeing the importance and authority of God's Word for the Christian today. We've since been anchored by God's word in Deuteronomy, encouraged by God's word to David in 2 Samuel, and challenged by God's word to Jeremiah last week as we looked at the call of Jeremiah. We saw the Lord told Jeremiah, I'm with my word to perform it. Just as the almond branch me watches for spring, so I watch over my word. So this morning... We're going to reach the very point to which everything that we've read in God's Word and everything else that we read in God's Word points us to. Perhaps the better way to say that is that we reach the very person to which everything that we read in God's Word points to. This morning I want us to see the glory of God's wisdom, His faithfulness and power displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that as we read God's word this morning. Again, John chapter 6, verse 60, verses 60 through 71 uh, is our text this morning. I'll invite you once again to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as I read this morning's text. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of God. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we see what you have given as your revelation, your written word, may we be encouraged, convicted and moved in obedience to it. May our hearts echo the words of Peter here. But to who else would we go? May our hearts say and declare that you have the words of life and you have provided us your enduring written word that we may have revelation of you and know you and respond accordingly as you draw us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So John opens his gospel. With those famous words of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and apart from Him, there was not one thing. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, not one thing was made that has been created. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. We move on to verse 9 of John chapter 1. And we see that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. We move on to verse 14 of John chapter 1, and we see, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John opens his gospel with this clear picture of Christ as the Word the divine word, with God in the beginning. We immediately have this Trinitarian theology where we see that he is with God, he is the word, he was God, and so there's there's nothing ambiguous about this. And in the beginning was the word, and all things were made through God's word. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then John says That in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And he tells us that light came into the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John opens his gospel by pointing to the truth that Jesus was the very fulfillment, focus, and purpose of everything recorded in God's word. The all-encompassing nature of this statement is immense, that Jesus wasn't God's backup plan, but rather what we see through the comprehensive storyline of Scripture is that he was predestined by God the Father to be the true fulfillment of the Word, for he was the Word. What John illuminates for us is a greater understanding of what we saw God say to Jeremiah last week. Jeremiah 1.12, I am watching over my word to perform it. What we noted from this last week is that God is with his word. This is one of our points on last week's outline. Well, John expands our understanding of that right here to show us that God is with his word because the Word and God are one. That's the first point on our outline this morning, is to see that God is with His Word because the Word and God are one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John brings to light the immense power of God's creative Word, spoken in the beginning, Exists in the person of Jesus. So God's Word is not an abstract thing or a a collection of allegories or ideals or things to just make us feel better, live a better life, but rather a divine person. So let this sink in and ruminate for a bit because when we truly grasp this reality, when we see and unfold what John is, is, is illuminating for us here in God's Word, it changes the way we read our Bibles. It changes the way we treat our Bibles. It changes the way we point others to our Bibles. When we truly realize that to us has been preserved the very Word which spoke the DNA chain into existence, which laid out the Milky Way, which created what would become silver grizzly coffee. When we realize that, how could we not want to endlessly draw from that wellspring of wisdom, knowledge, and life? In the Old Testament, as we saw, we we spent three uh, sermons in this series in the Old Testament. We're going to spend three in the New. We started out in Second Peter, and then we spent three in the Old Testament, and these next two uh, today and next Sunday will be in the New. And in the Old Testament, we saw God's creative word, His convicting word, His redeeming word, and the word of judgment upon His people through His covenant. This is how God spoke. He spoke orally and gave his covenant to his people that they may attain to it. God's word, both orally spoken and written, is what binds, moves, and motivates his people. Because as we also see in the Old Testament, he didn't just speak his word, but he gave explicit instruction to write it. To Abraham, he spoke his covenant word which he remained faithful to through Isaac and Jacob. And then to Moses, he spoke his covenant word with explicit instruction to write it down. Why? Why give the instruction to record his word? So focus. Why why make that explicit instruction? Because this was God's sovereign design for the endurance of his word. And for the spread of the life that it contains. That coming generations would know him. Would know his word and his ways. That they might be saved by grace through faith. He also gave explicit instruction to his chosen prophets. Jeremiah was one, which we saw last week. Isaiah is another. We see this explicit instruction given to these prophets. To write down what God is telling them Why? Again, because this was God's sovereign design for the endurance of his word. But the endurance of his word through what? Or for what? The endurance of his word through sin, sinful man, a sinful fallen world. Endur- endurance to what? Endurance until the time came for God to fulfill his word in Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is the true and better Adam, the true and better Abraham, Moses, the very fulfillment of God's promise to David, the very person which the prophets pointed to. He is the Word, the promised Word, the faithful Word, the divine Word made flesh. We'll come back to this enduring word in just a bit and kind of how God has worked that from uh, history and how God has endured his written word, right? But for now, let's press forward with our text. So when Jesus begins to speak, he speaks the words of God. As he goes about from this moment, you know John doesn't open with the traditional or the, what we would consider the Christmas story, but he gives us this clear picture of Christmas here in John chapter 1, and then he goes to the testimony of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist proclaims the coming of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So as Jesus begins to speak, he begins his ministry, he speaks with the words of God. Where does he continuously point his disciples? Where does he continuously point the crowds when he's teaching? He points to see himself in the written word of God and to see himself as the word of God. This is what is happening from, again, as I said, the time, from the time John the Baptist proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world, pointing all the way back to, and, and even in that, John is pointing back to Exodus 12, 3, where we see the instruction for the sacrificial lamb prescribed. And so we see continuously the pointing back to what is already written for what God is accomplishing in this day with Christ, Jesus himself points us back to the written word to clarify what is happening to him and in him, the divine word made flesh. So as he speaks, we we see oftentimes people's misunderstanding and lack of comprehension of God's word come into play, as we see with the crowds. So go back, focus back on this morning's text, verse 60 of of chapter 6 again. So when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So heard it, heard what? What did they hear? So we have to establish this before we can focus on today's text. Because if, if we miss this, what, if we miss what they heard, we miss the whole thing. Right? We can't really understand what's going on if we if we don't know it or what it is. This conversation here is taking place. Following the feeding of the 5,000. An incredible show of Jesus' divine power and authority and purpose. So, Jesus, as he often did, uses this miracle as a teaching opportunity. However, this is taking place a full day later after the feeding of the 5,000. So, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and the crowd gets all excited. They start exclaiming, This indeed is the prophet. And Jesus senses that this crowd is getting ready to crown him as king. So he escapes to the mountain to pray. Then we see disciples out on the sea. uh, And Jesus comes to them walking on water. And it kind of freaks them out. And so Jesus calms the sea as well as calming their fears. And he gets in the boat with them and they come back to the shore. And when they get back to the shore, we read that the crowd was there. Looking for Jesus. So this same, same crowd as you're moving through the story. When they find Jesus, they ask him. In verse 25 of chapter 6. Rabbi, when did you come here? To which Jesus responds by confronting their misunderstanding. You see, they were getting ready to crown him king. Once they saw him give them fish and bread and perform this miracle, they were full, they were excited, and they, they wanted to crown him king. And so they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he he points out that they came looking for him, thinking that he was a king that would fill their stomachs with bread. But what they need is eternal life. So, of course, they ask, well, what what can we do? What can we be doing to do the works of God? Is what they ask. And this is where Jesus confronts their misunderstanding. Verse 29 of chapter 6. Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So He said, they're, "They're looking for what are the what's the list of things that we need to accomplish, the stuff that we need to check off. What can we do to be doing the works of God?" And Jesus said, "This is the work. Believe." The people want to know what duty or task they must achieve in order to earn eternal life of which, this eternal life of what Jesus speaks. What was it that Moses told the people would happen and needed to happen so that they could rightly uphold the law? Deuteronomy chapter chapter 30, verse 6, we read this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So Moses told them that the Lord has to circumcise your heart before you can then live rightly according to this law well here we see that that is still what the people are in need of to this day what was it that the lord declared through jeremiah in chapter jeremiah chapter 4 you can just take a note of that off to the side jeremiah 4 verses 1 through 4 we read if you return O israel declares the lord to me you should return If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver. And he goes on to say, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. So Moses' day, it wasn't that they had to just do the works and and attain to the law on their own. They needed their hearts circumcised first so they could rightly believe and then live in obedience to the law. Jeremiah, they're still not getting it. So the Lord tells them, if you're to return, this is what you have to do. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. So Jesus tells this group, it's not by works of the flesh or a moral list that you'll be saved. But instead, you must have faith in the one whom God has sent. And then you will produce good works. So the crowd doesn't like this answer. You might notice they don't like a lot of what Jesus has to say to their misconceived notions, right? So the crowd doesn't like this, so they ask him what sign Jesus can perform, like he's some sort of magician at a party or something, right? The crowd asks him what sign he could show them that would verify this claim. As if they weren't just the day before, had their bellies filled with the bread that he produced, right? So the exact example they use is that Moses produced manna from heaven. To which Jesus responds in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus points to himself as the bread from heaven. And not only that, but he also says that only those who come to him will eat this bread. And they've seen him, but don't believe. They've already been shown, they've already been shown, and they don't believe. So this, of course, a big no-no for them. It's like Jesus is saying that they don't get it, that they don't understand, that they can't have access to this. So they're, they're, they're Jewish. How could Jesus say that the Lord would not give them this eternal life-giving bread? It's theirs. They've earned it. Wrong. In their mind, they deserve it. And then Jesus takes it even further. They start to complain and Jesus says this, going down to verse forty-four. So he's explaining how he's explaining even further how he's the bread of life, and we get down to verse forty-four. He says says it plainly: No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he continues. So the crowd, uh, he he points to the prophets. Once again, important to his written word. And then he goes on and the crowd hears and they're not liking this. He moves on to verse 48. And he explains to them, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So he said, you want me to produce manna? You want to be just like your fathers is what you want. They ate the manna from heaven and they died. I'm the bread of life. So, and continue there to verse 54. So they start to dispute amongst themselves. And then he begins to break it down for them. And unless you eat the the flesh of the Son of Man, drink the blood, you have no life in you. Whoever Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. That's what he says in verse 54. So Jesus says, I'm not just the manna from heaven. But I was there when the manna was sent from heaven. Your fathers ate that and they died. I'm not just the manna from heaven, but I am the very Passover meal which provides true eternal life. The manna from heaven provided the people with the sustenance they needed to live. Before that, the Lord had given them the the Passover I didn't just come to bring you bread. I came to be the bread and the drink broken and poured out for you. But the Lord says, Jesus says, but you can't understand less unless the Father draws you. And this is what, it, this, at this point, it, the crowd decides that Jesus has taken it too far. And so as we read in verse 60, in direct contrast to Moses' words, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus enlightens them as to why this saying is too hard. It's too hard for them to comprehend literally. They don't want to partake in cannibalism. It's too hard for them to comprehend spiritually because they don't want a broken bread savior. They want a king that can give them bread and fill their bellies. And it's too hard for them to comprehend spiritually because they're blinded in their sinfulness. So how does Jesus sort out this larger group? How does he show them who the Father has drawn and who hasn't? With the word. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is what is this is what offends them, right? Is that the spirit gives life? It's not that you've earned it. The flesh is no help at all. It doesn't matter that you were just born into this. You think you deserve it? The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So he repeats again. He said, let me explain to you. You're not getting it. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Why does, why does Jesus ask? He already knows. He sensed it in them. John kind of gives us that commentary there. So why ask? He wanted them to be confronted with their own unbelief. He wanted to confront them with the truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth. They needed to be confronted with the truth that there is no amount of good deeds or deserved salvation. It doesn't exist. That unless the Father draws, they will not come. The flesh is no help at all. So notice the relationship, though, of the work between the Word and the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. So you want eternal life. You want salvation. You want this bread. You won't get it by accomplishing a task and then living life the way that you want. You won't get it by remaining in the flesh. The word pierces the heart of flesh and the spirit gives life. Then the part that really. Sets them off, is what we read there in verse 65. This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The next point on our outline this morning is that the word is offensive to the flesh. When God's word reveals God's sovereignty over all things, including over dead sinners coming to life in Jesus, the flesh is offended. Because when we realize that we are totally not in control, but we've spent our lives trying to be in total control, it comes into direct conflict with everything that this world tells us to be and do. So when the word reveals God's sovereignty over all things, including dead sinners coming to life in Jesus, the flesh is offended. And this is what we see. In their response in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So we know that there were lots of disciples other than the 12. There are lots of people that followed Jesus, uh, listened to his teaching, went different places, learned from him. We see the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which were not named as part of the 12. So we see that there were other disciples. But So after this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. So if that kind of confused you at first, the, the, we see this is just the, the title given here to those who are following and learning. Disciple literally means learner, right? So that, that is what is going on here. So what we read and hear from God's word and what our hearts desire are different. What we read and hear from God's word and what our hearts desire are completely different. The sovereignty of God over salvation is offensive to the flesh. We don't want to hear it. It's offensive to our ears, our egos, our own sense of sovereignty that we've sought since the garden. This crowd that was willing to crown Jesus king just the day before for filling their bellies with bread, Leaves in an instant when he reveals that what they really need is himself as the bread of life broken and poured out for them. Why? Why do they leave? Because they're blind to what Jesus is saying. They've been blinded by their sinfulness, blinded by their desires, blinded by their own hearts, and their flesh is having none of it. Don't join them, church. They turn away from the divine word of truth to search for another word. A word which will fill their bellies while also making them feel good about their eternal destination. Make them feel satisfied in their own sense of personal sovereignty. And give them a view of salvation which would have them talking all about their choice and all about grace and love. They go away searching for another word rather than the word. Don't join them. It's no different in our day. People hear of God's sovereignty and say, I want none of that. So they search for whatever bread will fill their bellies and make them happy. Jesus said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. So we see... People in our day search for a word of different philosophies, atheism, wokeism, anything that would rid them and justify them from all-consuming sin. And having no answer to God for that sin is the word that they search for, even if it means denying the existence of God to justify themselves. Deny the existence of God, you must deny the truth of what? The word. Which means we must be ready, church, to defend the truth, the viability, and the life-giving nature of the word. It's shocking how many in the church don't know how we got our Bibles. We'll sit here with these in our laps and with we'll trust in them as the word of God, having no knowledge of how it got here. That's what leads to false teaching, people walking away from their faith, deconstructing progressive theologies, and all that ilk. So when you say to someone, well, this is what God's word says, this is what the Bible says, and they respond with, how do you know that's God's word? What is your response? Do you have one? Now what I'm not advocating is that Scripture itself is not sufficient, okay? That would kind of negate the very point of this entire series, right? Mm -hmm. What I am advocating for is that we have such an intimate knowledge of God's Word that we can not only point to God's Word as our foremost authority with complete confidence, but we can also say why. So how did we get our Bibles? I want to cover that. I obviously do not have enough time to do justice to the text and cover the history of the Bible in uh, one setting. Well, I guess I could if we just don't want to break for lunch or anything like that. But, so how, how did we get our Bibles? So we don't have the animal skin that Moses wrote on, right? Nor the, the scrolls of the prophets. Those would, be called what, those would be what we call the original manuscripts, we don't have those. Like, in fact, Jeremiah says that the king tore up his, right? So, so what, do we, what do we have? We have a tradition of copies that have been passed down through time. Manuscripts that were copied with such detail and precision that if one dot was out of place, the whole thing would be thrown away. And the sheer volume of biblical manuscripts that we do have far outweighs any other historical work that we proclaim as viable or relevant to us. The Lord is with his word to perform it because God and the word are one. So God declared that his word be written and recorded so that it be passed down to his people so that when Christ came, Christ would point back to the written word. So that as Peter elaborates for us, as the author of Hebrews elaborates for us, So that in that time, they would record what Christ had pointed to, what Christ had said and done, and how he had instructed his church to live. The Lord is with his word word to perform it. So as the Catholic Church grew into prominence, the Latin Vulgate became the official and only allowed translation of God's word. We've outlined over the last several weeks many different uh, reformers who stood against this teaching. As we've seen, the Lord's word endures. So that, let me give you a little bit of history. You didn't know you were coming to history class. But when Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks, all of its scholars fled where? To Europe. And what did they take with them? The manuscripts in the original languages. So when the, that got to Europe, it began to raise questions. doubts about these things that the church was saying, that the Bible needed to be studied in its original languages so that people themselves could know what God's Word said. So that, a few weeks ago, I noted a, a Reformation figure named Erasmus. You may have forgotten or maybe you weren't here that day, but he was one of the key leaders which God used to spark the Reformation. We know Luther, we know Tyndale, we know Zwingli and Calvin, but Erasmus is often forgotten. And I noted... few weeks ago, in 1516, 63 years after the fall of Constantinople, Erasmus went against the church and produced a Greek New Testament, which sparked Luther and Tyndale and all the others to stand on the truth of God's word. God's word endures. To live in the time that we do now is a remarkable gift. You might not think so from day to day. But it's a remarkable gift of God's grace. To have the amount of access to God's word as we do is unheard of anywhere else in history. The faithfulness of God to protect his word and produce an enduring written word. We've seen the work of the enemy to veil God's word, attempt uh, to keep it hidden We see the blood that has been shed that we may have our own copy of God's word. Why? Because the word pierces hearts and the spirit gives life. And yet we would leave our Bibles on our shelves, in our cars, untouched Sunday to Sunday. Why is this important? Why is it important to Kind of pause here in the middle of, of breaking down this text to then have a, a history lesson. You might be asking yourself that. But it's important to see these points of history and these faith, the faithful obedience of these men. Because it shows the endurance of God's life-giving divine word. And this is what Peter realizes as Jesus asked him a pointed question as we keep looking at today's text. So many of them leave, verse 66. uh, This huge crowd leaves and no longer walked with Jesus. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So why does, again, why does Jesus ask? He asks this question of, the crowd, now he asks this question of the twelve. He asks so that they will have to confront their own disbelief. They, they will have to be confronted with the truth of God's word. Jesus already knows their conviction and beliefs, yet he asks, do you want to go away as well? And this brings me to our next point, is that the, the word confronts our disbelief. God's word confronts the disbelief of our flesh and poses the question, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go the way of the world? Do you want to walk the wide path of darkness or the well-lit path of life? God's word cuts to our core, pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns our thoughts, disbeliefs, and intentions of the heart. Because what is Peter's response? Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what were those words? Christ pointed to the word and pointed to himself as the word. Verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So where would we go, church? Where would we go with the word? Would we go with the word of the atheists, with their never-ending lists of theories and their never-ever-growing timeline of evolution? What do you need for evolution to work? You need more time. Why does their timeline continue to grow? Because they have to make it work. Would we go with the word of the time, the word which would negate the power of sin and of God's sovereignty, the word which would have us believing in our own ability to save ourselves? Would we go with the word of those who have new revelation with their erratic and charismatic actions to go along with forked tongues that contradict God's word? Would we go with the word of the culture, always seeking to make ourselves happy but never finding happiness? Where would we go, church? The word illuminates the path of life. The very thing that keeps us is the same thing which kept Peter standing firm. You have the words of eternal life. The word was spoken, the word pierced, and the spirit moved. As with us, the Father drew, the word pierce, and the Spirit moved. In chapter 8 of John, we see Jesus go on to say, as he's, the Pharisees have brought a woman caught in adultery before him and asked what they should do with him. And this is the, you know, you had the famous... Uh, phrase from Jesus, we say, "You, you who have, uh, you who are without sin, cast the first stone." And then he continues speaking to this crowd and to the Pharisees. After he dismisses the woman, and says, "Go and sin no more." He says again, chapter eight, verse twelve. Jesus says again. Jesus spoke to them, saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." So he continues speaking. And go on to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, this is chapter 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Going on to chapter 14, Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas asks him where he's going, that they don't know. It's not clear. Jesus says to Thomas in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now you go to chapter 18. And Jesus is before Pilate. And what was it the crowd was eager to do in chapter 6? They were eager to crown him king. Because he had provided bread. But he told them that what they needed was not physical bread, but they needed him as the bread. And he didn't, came not to provide bread, but to be bread. And Pilate said to him, chapter 18, verse 37, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, the Word. So we see that Jesus came that the Word may endure, that the Word may be fulfilled, and that Jesus died paying the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So that his word would go on in his disciples. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. When seeking to counter arguments against God, the first place we should rightly go is to God's word. When an atheist challenges the authority or authenticity of the word, are we ready when a Mormon says that they agree with us, that their book is God's Word too, are we ready? Are we ready to attest the enduring written divine Word of God? And when challenged where to go, when challenged by this world, will we respond the same as Peter? Where else would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, as we consider this word, and that this saying is not too hard for us, and that we can listen to it. Father, I pray for any who might be here who don't believe, that you would open their eyes, open their hearts, pierce their hearts with the truth of your word, draw them to yourself. Father, for those of us who do believe, who do trust in your word and know that it is true and good and right and it is the only source of authority in life, may we not take that belief that you have given us for granted. Help us, Lord, to stand firm on the foundation of your word and your word alone. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.